Chapter Three of A Sicilian Romance by Anne Radcliffe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. The castle was buried in sleep when Ferdinand again joined his sister in Madame's apartment. With anxious curiosity, they followed him to the chamber. The room was hung with tapestry. Ferdinand carefully sounded the wall which communicated with the southern buildings. From one part of it a sound was returned, which convinced him there was something less solid than stone. He removed the tapestry, and behind it appeared, to his inexpressible satisfaction, a small door. With a hand trembling through eagerness, he unthrew the bolts and was rushing forward, when he perceived that a lock withheld his passage. The keys of Madame and his sisters were applied in vain, and he was compelled to submit to disappointment at the very moment when he congratulated himself on success, for he had with him no means of forcing the door. He stood gazing on the door, and inwardly lamenting, when a low hollow sound was heard from beneath. Amelia and Julia seized his arm, and almost sinking with apprehension, listened in profound silence. A footstep was distinctly heard, as if passing through the apartment below, after which all was still. Ferdinand, fired by this confirmation of the late report, rushed on to the door, and again tried to burst his way, but it resisted all the efforts of his strength. The ladies now rejoiced in that circumstance which they so lately lamented, for the sounds had renewed their terror, and though the night passed without further disturbance, their fears were very little abated. Ferdinand, whose mind was wholly occupied with wonder, could with difficulty await the return of night. Amelia and Julia were scarcely less impatient. They counted the minutes as they passed, and when the family retired to rest, hastened with palpitating hearts to the apartment of Madame. They were soon after joined by Ferdinand, who brought with him tools for cutting away the lock of the door. They paused a few moments in the chamber in fearful silence, but no sound disturbed the stillness of night. Ferdinand applied a knife to the door and in a short time separated the lock. The door yielded and disclosed a large and gloomy gallery. He took a light. Amelia and Julia, fearful of remaining in the chamber, resolved to accompany him, and each seizing an arm of Madame, they followed in silence. The gallery was in many parts falling to decay. The ceiling was broke, and the window shutters shattered, which, together with the dampness of the walls, gave the place an air of wild desolation. They passed lightly on, for their steps ran in whispering echoes through the gallery, and often did Julia cast a fearful glance around. The gallery terminated in a large old staircase, which led to a hall below, on the left appeared several doors which seemed to lead to separate apartments. While they hesitated which course to pursue, a light flashed faintly up the staircase, and in a moment after passed away. At the same time was heard the sound of a distant footstep. Ferdinand drew his sword and sprang forward. His companions, screaming with terror, ran back to Madame's apartment. Ferdinand descended a large vaulted hall, he crossed it towards a low-arched door, which was left half open. 
and through which streamed a ray of light. The door opened upon a narrow, winding passage. He entered, and the light retiring, was quickly lost in the windings of the place. Still he went on. The passage grew narrower, and the frequent fragments of loose stone made it now difficult to proceed. A low door closed the avenue, resembling that by which he had entered. He opened it and discovered a square room, from whence rose a winding staircase, which led up the south tower of the castle. Ferdinand paused to listen. The sound of steps was ceased, and all was profoundly silent. A door on the right attracted his notice. He tried to open it, but it was fastened. He concluded, therefore, that the person, if indeed a human being it was that bore the light he had seen, had passed up the tower. After a momentary hesitation, he determined to ascend the staircase, but its ruinous condition made this an adventure of some difficulty. The steps were decayed and broken, and the looseness of the stones rendered a footing very insecure. Impelled by an irresistible curiosity, he was undismayed and began the ascent. He had not proceeded very far, when the stones of a step which his foot had just quitted, loosened by his weight, gave way, and dragging with them those adjoining, formed a chasm in the staircase that terrified even Ferdinand, who was left tottering on the suspended half of the steps, in momentary expectation of falling to the bottom with the stone on which he rested. In the terror which this occasioned, he attempted to save himself by catching at a kind of beam which projected over the stairs, when the lamp dropped from his hand, and he was left in total darkness. Terror now usurped the place of every other interest, and he was utterly perplexed how to proceed. He feared to go on, lest the steps above, as infirm as those below, should yield to his weight. To return was impracticable, for the darkness precluded the possibility of discovering a means. He determined, therefore, to remain in this situation till light should dawn through the narrow grates in the walls, and enable him to contrive some method of letting himself down to the ground. He had remained here above an hour, when he suddenly heard a voice from below. It seemed to come from the passage leading to the tower, and perceptibly drew nearer. His agitation was now extreme, for he had no power of defending himself, and while he remained in this state of torturing expectation, a blaze of light burst upon the staircase beneath him. In the succeeding moment he heard his own name sounded from below. His apprehensions instantly vanished, for he distinguished the voices of Madame and his sisters. They had awaited his return in all the horrors of apprehension, till at length all fear for themselves was lost in their concern for him, and they, who so lately had not dared to enter this part of the edifice, now undauntedly searched it in quest of Ferdinand. What were their emotions when they discovered his perilous situation? The light now enabled him to take a more accurate survey of the place. He perceived that some few stones of the steps which had fallen still remained attached to the wall, but he feared to trust to their support only. He observed, however, that the wall itself was partly decayed, and consequently rugged with the corners of half-worn stones. On these small projections he contrived, with the assistance of the steps already mentioned, to suspend himself, and at length gained the unbroken part of the stairs in safety. 
it is difficult to determine which individual of the party rejoiced most at this escape. The morning now dawned, and Ferdinand desisted for the present from farther inquiry. The interest which these mysterious circumstances excited in the mind of Julia had withdrawn her attention from a subject more dangerous to its peace. The image of Veriza, notwithstanding, would frequently intrude upon her fancy, and awakening the recollection of happy emotions, would call forth a sigh which all her efforts could not suppress. She loved to indulge the melancholy of her heart in the solitude of the woods. One evening she took her lute to a favorite spot on the seashore, and resigning herself to a pleasing sadness, touched some sweet and plaintive airs. The purple flush of evening was diffused over the heavens. The sun, involved in clouds of splendid and innumerable hues, was setting o'er the distant waters, whose clear bosom glowed with rich reflection. The beauty of the scene, the soothing murmur of the high trees, waved by the light air which overshadowed her, and the soft shelling of the waves that flowed gently in upon the shores, insensibly sunk her mind into a state of repose. She touched the chords of her lute in sweet and wild melody, and sung the following ode. Evening Evening veiled in dewy shades, slowly sinks upon the main. See the empurpled glory fades beneath her sober chastened rain. Around her car the pensive hours, in sweet elapses meet the sight, crowned their brows with closing flowers rich with crystal dews of night. Her hands the dusky hues arrange o'er the fine tints of parting day, insensibly the colors change and languish into soft decay. Wide o'er the waves her shadowy veil she draws, as faint they die along the distant shores. Through the still air I mark each solemn pause, each rising murmur which the wild wave pours. A browner shadow spreads upon the air, and o'er the scene a pensive grandeur throws, the rocks, the woods a wilder beauty wear, and the deep waves in softer music flows. And now the distant view where vision fails, twilight and gray obscurity pervade. Tint following tint, each darkening object veils, till all the landscape sinks into the shade. Oft from the airy steep of some lone hill, while sleeps the scene beneath the purple glow, and evening lives o'er all serene and still, wrapped let me view the magic world below, and catch the dying gale that swells remote, that steals the sweetness from the shepherd's flute, the distant torrent's melancholy note, and the soft warblings of the lover's lute. Still through the deepening gloom of bowery shades, to fancy's eye fantastic forms appear. Low whispering echoes steal along the glades, and thrill the ear with wildly pleasing fear. Parent of shades, of silence, dewy airs, of solemn musings, and of vision wild, to thee my soul her pensive tribute bears, and hails thy gradual step, thy influence mild. Having ceased to sing, her fingers wandered over the lute in melancholy symphony, and for some moments she remained lost in the sweet sensations which the music and the scenery had inspired. She was awakened from her reverie by a sigh that stole from among the trees, 
and directing her eyes whence it came, beheld Hippolytus. A thousand sweet and mingled emotions pressed upon her heart, yet she scarcely dared to trust the evidence of sight. He advanced, and throwing herself at his feet, "'Suffer me,' said he, in a tremulous voice, "'to disclose to you the sentiments which you have inspired, "'and to offer you the effusions of a heart "'filled only with love and admiration.' "'Rise, my lord,' said Julia, "'moving from her seat with an air of dignity. "'That attitude is neither becoming you to use "'or me to suffer. "'The evening is closing, "'and Ferdinand will be impatient to see you.' "'Never shall I rise, madam,' replied the Count, with an impassioned air, till he was interrupted by the Marchioness, who at this moment entered the grove. On observing the position of the Count, she was retiring. "'Stay, madam,' said Julia, almost sinking under her confusion. "'By no means,' replied the Marchioness, in a tone of irony. "'My presence would only interrupt a very agreeable scene. The Count, I see, is willing to pay you his earliest respects.' Saying this, she disappeared, leaving Julia distressed and offended, and the Count provoked at the intrusion. He attempted to renew the subject, but Julia hastily followed the steps of the Marchioness and entered the castle. The scene she had witnessed raised in the Marchioness a tumult of dreadful emotions. Love, hatred, and jealousy raged by turns in her heart, and defied all power of control, Subjected to their alternate violence, she experienced a misery more acute than any she had yet known. Her imagination, invigorated by opposition, heightened to her the graces of Hippolytus. Her bosom glowed with more intense passion, and her brain was at length exasperated almost to madness. In Julia, this sudden and unexpected interview excited a mingled emotion of love and vexation, which did not soon subside. At length, however, the delightful consciousness of Veriza's love bore her high above every other sensation. Again the scene more brightly glowed, and again her fancy overcame the possibility of evil. During the evening a tender and timid respect distinguished the behavior of the Count towards Julia, who, contented with the certainty of being loved, resolved to conceal her sentiments till an explanation of his abrupt departure from Mazzini and subsequent absence, should have dissipated the shadow of mystery which hung over this part of his conduct. She observed that the Marchioness pursued her with steady and constant observation, and she carefully avoided affording the Count an opportunity of renewing the subject of the preceding interview, which, whenever he approached her, seemed to tremble on his lips. Night returned, and Ferdinand repaired to the chamber of Julia to pursue his inquiry. Here he had not long remained, when the strange and alarming sounds which had been heard on the preceding night were repeated. The circumstance that now sunk in terror the minds of Amelia and Julia fired with new wonder that of Ferdinand, who, seizing a light, darted through the discovered door and almost instantly disappeared. He descended into the same wild hall he had passed on the preceding night. He had scarcely reached the bottom of the staircase, when a feeble light gleamed across the hall, and his eye caught the glimpse of a figure retiring through the low-arched door which led to the south tower. He drew his sword and rushed on. A faint sound died away along the passage, 
the windings of which prevented his seeing the figure he pursued. Of this, indeed, he had obtained so slight a view that he scarcely knew whether it bore the impression of a human form. The light quickly disappeared, and he heard the door that opened upon the tower suddenly close. He reached it, and forcing it open, sprang forward. But the place was dark and solitary, and there was no appearance of any person having passed along it. He looked up the tower, and the chasm which the staircase exhibited convinced him that no human being could have passed up. He stood silent and amazed, examining the place with an eye of strict inquiry. He perceived a door, which was partly concealed by hanging stairs, and which till now had escaped his notice. Hope invigorated curiosity, but his expectation was quickly disappointed, for this door also was fastened. He tried in vain to force it. He knocked, and a hollow, sullen sound ran in echoes through the place, and died away at a distance. It was evident that beyond this door were chambers of considerable extent, but after long and various attempts to reach them he was obliged to desist, and he quitted the tower as ignorant and more dissatisfied than he had entered it. He returned to the hall, which he now for the first time deliberately surveyed. It was a spacious and desolate apartment, whose lofty roof rose into arches, supported by pillars of black marble. The same substance inlaid the floor, and formed the staircase. The windows were high and gothic. An air of proud sublimity, united with singular wildness, characterized the place, at the extremity of which arose several gothic arches, whose dark shade veiled in obscurity the extent beyond. On the left hand appeared two doors, each of which was fastened, and on the right the grand entrance from the courts. Ferdinand determined to explore the dark recess which terminated his view, and as he traversed the hall his imagination, affected by the surrounding scene, often multiplied the echoes of his footsteps into uncertain sounds of strange and fearful import. He reached the arches, and discovered beyond a kind of inner hall of considerable extent which was closed at the farther end by a pair of massy folding doors, heavily ornamented with carving. They were fastened by a lock and defied his utmost strength. As he surveyed the place in silent wonder, a sullen groan arose from beneath the spot where he stood. His blood ran cold at the sound, but silence returning and continuing unbroken, he attributed his alarm to the illusion of a fancy which terror had impregnated. He made another effort to force the door, when a groan was repeated more hollow and more dreadful than the first. At this moment all his courage forsook him. He quitted the door and hastened to the staircase, which he ascended almost breathless with terror. He found Madame de Menon and his sisters awaiting his return in the most painful anxiety, and thus disappointed in all his endeavors to penetrate the secret of these buildings, and fatigued with fruitless search, he resolved to suspend further inquiry. When he related the circumstances of his late adventure, the terror of Amelia and Julia was heightened to a degree that overcame every prudent consideration. Their apprehension of the Marquise's displeasure was lost in a stronger feeling, and they resolved no longer to remain in apartments which offered only terrific imagery to their fancy. 
Madame de Menon, almost equally alarmed and more perplexed by this combination of strange and unaccountable circumstances, ceased to oppose their design. It was resolved, therefore, that on the following day Madame should acquaint the Marchioness with such particulars of their late occurrence as their purpose made it necessary she should know, concealing their knowledge of the hidden door and the incidents immediately dependent on it, and that Madame should entreat a change of apartments. Madame accordingly waited on the Marchioness, the Marchioness having listened to the account at first with surprise, and afterwards with indifference, condescended to reprove Madame for encouraging superstitious belief in the minds of her young charge. She concluded with ridiculing as fanciful the circumstances related, and with refusing, on account of the numerous visitants to the castle, the request preferred to her. It is true the castle was crowded with visitors, the former apartments of Madame de Menon were the only ones unoccupied, and these were in magnificent preparation for the pleasure of the Marchioness, who was unaccustomed to sacrifice her own wishes to the comfort of those around her. She therefore treated lightly the subject, which, seriously attended to, would have endangered her new plan of delight. But Amelia and Julia were too seriously terrified to obey the scruples of delicacy, or to be easily repulsed. They prevailed on Ferdinand to represent their situation to the Marquis. Meanwhile, Hippolytus, who had passed the night in a state of sleepless anxiety, watched with busy impatience an opportunity of more fully disclosing to Julia the passion which glowed in his heart. The first moment in which he beheld her had awakened in him an admiration which had first ripened into a sentiment more tender. He had been prevented formally declaring his passion by the circumstance which so suddenly called him to Naples. This was the dangerous illness of the Marquis de Lomelli, his near and much-valued relation. But it was a task too painful to depart in silence, and he contrived to inform Julia of his sentiments in the air which she heard so sweetly sung beneath her window. When Hippolytus reached Naples, the Marquis was yet living, but expired a few days after his arrival, leaving the Count heir to the small possessions which remained from the extravagance of their ancestors. The business of adjusting his rights had till now detained him from Sicily, whither he came for the sole purpose of declaring his love. Here unexpected obstacles awaited him. The jealous vigilance of the Marchioness conspired with the delicacy of Julia to withhold from him the opportunity he so anxiously sought. When Ferdinand entered upon the subject of the southern buildings to the Marquis, he carefully avoided mentioning the hidden door. The Marquis listened for some time to the relation in gloomy silence, but at length, assuming an air of displeasure, reprehended Ferdinand for yielding his confidence to those idle alarms, which he said were the suggestions of a timid imagination. Alarms, continued he, which will readily find admittance to the weak mind of a woman, but which the firmer nature of man should disdain. Degenerate boy, is it thus you reward my care? Do I live to see my son the sport of every idle tale a woman may repeat? Learn to trust reason and your senses, and you will then be worthy of my attention. The Marquis was retiring, and Ferdinand now perceived it necessary to declare that he had himself witnessed the sounds he mentioned. "'Pardon me, lord,' said he. "'In the late instance I have been just to your command. "'My senses have been the only evidences I have trusted. "'I have heard these sounds which I cannot doubt.' "'The Marquis appeared shocked. "'Ferdinand perceived the change, "'and urged the subject so vigorously 
that the marquis suddenly assuming a look of grave importance commanded him to attend him in the evening in his closet ferdinand in passing from the marquis met hippolytus he was pacing the gallery in much seeming agitation but observing ferdinand he advanced to him i am ill at heart said he in a melancholy tone assist me with your advice we will step into this apartment where we can converse without interruption you are not ignorant said he throwing himself into a chair of the tender sentiments which your sister julia has inspired i entreat you by that sacred friendship which has so long united us to afford me an opportunity of pleading my passion her heart which is so susceptible of other impressions is i fear insensible to love procure me however the satisfaction of certainty upon a point where the tortures of suspense are surely the most intolerable your penetration replied ferdinand has for once forsaken you else you would now be spared the tortures of which you complain for you would have discovered what i have long observed that julia regards you with a partial eye do not said hippolytus make disappointment more terrible by flattery neither suffer the partiality of friendship to mislead your judgment your perceptions are affected by the warmth of your feelings and because you think i deserve her distinction you believe i possess it alas you deceive yourself but not me the very reverse replied ferdinand tis you who deceive yourself or rather it is the delicacy of the passion which animates you and which will ever operate against your clear perception of a truth in which your happiness is so deeply involved believe me i speak not without reason she loves you at these words hippolytus started from his seat and clasping his hands in fervent joy enchanting sounds cried he in a voice tenderly impassioned could i but believe ye could i but believe ye this world were paradise during this exclamation the emotions of julia who sat in her closet adjoining can with difficulty be imagined a door which opened into it from the apartment where this conversation was held was only half closed agitated with the pleasure this declaration excited she yet trembled with apprehension lest she should be discovered she hardly dared to breathe much less to move across the closet to the door which opened upon the gallery whence she might probably have escaped unnoticed lest the sound of her step should betray her compelled therefore to remain where she was she sat in a state of fearful distress which no color of language can paint alas resumed hippolytus i too eagerly admit the possibility of what i wish if you mean that i should really believe you confirm your assertion by some proof readily rejoined ferdinand the heart of julia beat quick when you were so suddenly called to naples upon the illness of the marquis lomelli i marked her conduct well and in that read the sentiments of her heart on the following morning i observed in her countenance a restless anxiety which i had never seen before she watched the entrance of every person with an eager expectation which was as often succeeded by evident disappointment at dinner your departure was mentioned she spilt the wine she was carrying to her lips and for the remainder of the day was spiritless and melancholy i saw her ineffectual struggles to conceal the oppression at her heart since that time she has seized every opportunity of withdrawing from company the gaiety with which she was so lately charmed charmed her no longer 
she became pensive, retired, and I often heard her singing in some lonely spot the most moving and tender airs. Your return produced a visible and instantaneous alteration. She has now resumed her gaiety, and the soft confusion of her countenance, whenever you approach, might alone suffice to convince you of the truth of my assertion. Oh, talk forever thus, sighed Hippolytus. These words are so sweet, so soothing to my soul, that I could listen till I forgot I had a wish beyond them. Yes, Ferdinand, these circumstances are not to be doubted, and conviction opens upon my mind a flow of ecstasy I never knew till now. Oh, lead me to her, that I may speak the sentiments which swell my heart. They arose when Julia, who with difficulty had supported herself, now impelled by an irresistible fear of instant discovery, rose also and moved slowly towards the gallery. The sound of her step alarmed the Count, who, apprehensive lest his conversation had been overheard, was anxious to be satisfied whether any person was in the closet. He rushed in and discovered Julia. She caught at a chair to support her trembling frame, and overwhelmed with mortifying sensations sunk into it and hid her face in her robe. Hippolytus threw himself at her feet and, seizing her hand, pressed it to his lips in expressive silence. Some moments passed before the confusion of either would suffer them to speak. At length, recovering his voice, "'Can you, madam,' said he, "'forgive this intrusion so unintentional? Or will it deprive me of that esteem which I have but lately ventured to believe I possessed, and which I value more than existence itself?' Oh, speak my pardon. Let me not believe that a single accident has destroyed my peace forever. If your peace, sir, depends upon a knowledge of my esteem, said Julia in a tremulous voice, that peace is already secure. If I wished even to deny the partiality I feel, it would now be useless, and since I no longer wish this, it would also be painful. Hippolytus could only weep his thanks over the hand he still held. "'Be sensible, however, of the delicacy of my situation,' continued she, rising, "'and suffer me to withdraw.' Saying this, she quitted the closet, leaving Hippolytus overcome with this sweet confirmation of his wishes, and Ferdinand not yet recovered from the painful surprise which the discovery of Julia had excited. He was deeply sensible of the confusion he had occasioned her, and knew that apologies would not restore the composure he had so cruelly yet unwarily disturbed. Ferdinand awaited the hour appointed by the Marquis in impatient curiosity. The solemn air which the Marquis assumed when he commanded him to attend had deeply impressed his mind. As the time drew nigh, expectation increased, and every moment seemed to linger into hours. At length he repaired to the closet where he did not remain long before the Marquis entered. The same chilling solemnity marked his manner. He locked the door of the closet and seated himself addressed Ferdinand as follows. I am now going to repose in you a confidence which will severely prove the strength of your honor. But before I disclose a secret, hitherto so carefully concealed and now reluctantly told, you must swear to preserve on this subject an eternal silence. If you doubt the steadiness of your discretion, now declare it and save yourself from the infamy and the fatal consequences which may attend a breach of your oath. If, on the contrary, you believe yourself capable of a strict integrity, now accept the terms and receive the secret I offer. 
Ferdinand was awed by this exordium, the impatience of curiosity was for a while suspended, and he hesitated whether he should receive the secret upon such terms. At length he signified his consent, and the Marquis, arising, drew his sword from the scabbard. Here, said he, offering it to Ferdinand, seal your vows, swear by this sacred pledge of honor never to repeat what I shall now reveal. Ferdinand vowed upon the sword, and raising his eyes to heaven solemnly swore. The Marquis then resumed his seat and proceeded. You are now to learn that, about a century ago, this castle was in the possession of Vincent, third Marquis of Mazzini, my grandfather. At that time there existed an inveterate hatred between our family and that of Della Campo. I shall not now revert to the origin of the animosity, or relate the particulars of the consequent feuds. Suffice it to observe that by the power of our family the Della Campos were unable to preserve their former consequence in Sicily, and they have therefore quitted it for a foreign land, to live in unmolested security. To return to my subject, my grandfather, believing his life endangered by his enemy, planted spies upon him. He employed some of the numerous banditti who sought protection in his service, and, after some weeks passed, in waiting for an opportunity, they seized Henry de la Campo, and brought him secretly to this castle. He was for some time confined in a close chamber of the southern buildings, where he expired. By what means I shall forbear to mention. The plan had been so well conducted, and the secrecy so strictly preserved, that every endeavor of his family to trace the means of his disappearance proved ineffectual. Their conjectures, if they fell upon our family, were supported by no proof, and the Della Campos are to this day ignorant of the mode of his death. A rumor had prevailed long before the death of my father that the southern buildings of the castle were haunted. I disbelieved the fact and treated it accordingly. One night, when every human being of the castle except myself was retired to rest, I had such strong and dreadful proofs of the general assertion that even at this moment I cannot recollect them without horror. Let me, if possible, forget them. From that moment I forsook those buildings. They have ever since been shut up, and the circumstance I have mentioned is the true reason why I have resided so little at the castle. Ferdinand listened to this narrative in silent horror. He remembered the temerity with which he had dared to penetrate those apartments, the light and figure he had seen, and above all, his situation in the staircase of the tower. Every nerve thrilled at the recollection, and the terrors of remembrance almost equaled those of reality. The Marquis permitted his daughters to change their apartments, but he commanded Ferdinand to tell them that, in granting their request, he consulted their ease only, and was himself by no means convinced of its propriety. They were accordingly reinstated to their former chambers, and the great room only of Madame's apartments was reserved for the Marchioness, who expressed her discontent to the Marquis in terms of mingled censure and lamentation. The Marquis privately reproved his daughters for what he termed the idle fancies of a weak mind, and desired them no more to disturb the peace of the castle with the subject of their late fears. They received this reproof with silent submission, too much pleased with the success of their suit to be susceptible of any emotion but joy. Ferdinand, reflecting on the late discovery, was shocked to learn what was now forced upon his belief, that he was the descendant of a murderer. 
he now knew that innocent blood had been shed in the castle, and that the walls were still the haunt of an unquiet spirit, which seemed to call aloud for retribution on the posterity of him who had disturbed its eternal rest. Hippolytus perceived his dejection, and entreated that he might participate his uneasiness. But Ferdinand, who had hitherto been frank and ingenuous, was now inflexibly reserved. "'Forbear,' said he, "'to urge a discovery of what I am not permitted to reveal. This is the only point upon which I conjure you to be silent. And this, even to you, I cannot explain.' Hippolytus was surprised, but pressed the subject no further." Julia, though she had been extremely mortified by the circumstances attendant on the discovery of her sentiments to Hippolytus, experienced after the first shock had subsided an emotion more pleasing than painful. The late conversation had painted in strong colors the attachment of her lover. His diffidence, his slowness to perceive the effect of his merit, his succeeding rapture, when conviction was at length forced upon his mind, and his conduct upon discovering Julia, proved to her at once the delicacy and the strength of his passion, and she yielded her heart to sensations of pure and unmixed delight. She was roused from this state of visionary happiness by a summons from the Marquis to attend him in the library. A circumstance so unusual surprised her, and she obeyed with trembling curiosity. She found him pacing the room in deep thought, and she had shut the door before he perceived her. The authoritative severity in his countenance alarmed her, and prepared her for a subject of importance. He seated himself by her, and continued a moment silent. At length, steadily observing her, "'I sent for you, my child,' said he, "'to declare the honor which waits you. The Duke de Ovo has solicited your hand. An alliance so splendid was beyond my expectation. You will receive the distinction with the gratitude it claims,' and prepare for the celebration of the nuptials. This speech fell like the dart of death upon the heart of Julia. She sat motionless, stupefied, and deprived of the power of utterance. The Marquis observed her consternation, and mistaking its cause. I acknowledge, said he, that there is somewhat abrupt in this affair, but the joy occasioned by a distinction so unmerited on your part ought to overcome the little feminine weakness you might otherwise indulge. "'Retire and compose yourself and observe,' continued he in a stern voice. "'This is no time for finesse.' These words roused Julia from her state of horrid stupefaction. "'Oh, sir,' said she, throwing herself at his feet, "'forbear to enforce authority upon a point where to obey you would be worse than death. If indeed to obey you were possible,' Cease, said the Marquis, this affectation and practice that becomes you. Pardon me, my lord, she replied. My distress is, alas, unfeigned. I cannot love the duke. Away, interrupted the Marquis, nor tempt my rage with objections thus childish and absurd. Yet hear me, my lord, said Julia, tears swelling in her eyes, and pity the sufferings of a child who never till this moment has dared to dispute your commands. "'Nor shall she now,' said the Marquis. "'What, when wealth, honor, and distinction are laid at my feet, "'shall they be refused because a foolish girl, "'a very baby who knows not good from evil, "'cries, and says she cannot love? "'Let me not think of it. "'My just anger may, perhaps, outrun discretion, "'and tempt me to chastise your folly. 
attend to what I say, accept the duke, or quit this castle forever, and wander where you will. Saying this, he burst away, and Julia, who had hung weeping upon his knees, fell prostrate upon the floor. The violence of the fall completed the effect of her distress, and she fainted. In this state she remained a considerable time. When she recovered her senses, the recollection of her calamity burst upon her mind with a force that almost again overwhelmed her. She at length raised herself from the ground and moved towards her own apartment, but had scarcely reached the great gallery when Hippolytus entered it. Her trembling limbs would no longer support her. She caught at a banister to save herself, and Hippolytus, with all his speed, was scarcely in time to prevent her falling. The pale distress exhibited in her countenance terrified him, and he anxiously inquired concerning it. She could answer him only with her tears, which she found it impossible to suppress, and, gently disengaging herself, tottered to her closet. Hippolytus followed her to the door, but desisted from further importunity. He pressed her hand to his lips in tender silence, and withdrew, surprised and alarmed. Julia, resigning herself to despair, indulged in solitude the excess of her grief. A calamity so dreadful as the present had never before presented itself to her imagination. The union proposed would have been hateful to her, even if she had no prior attachment. What then must have been her distress, when she had given her heart to him who deserved all her admiration, and returned all her affection? The Duke de Loovo was of a character very similar to that of the Marquis. The love of power was his ruling passion. With him, no gentle or generous sentiment meliorated the harshness of authority, or directed it to acts of beneficence. He delighted in simple, undisguised tyranny. He had been twice married, and the unfortunate women subjected to his power had fallen victims to the slow but corroding hand of sorrow. He had one son— who some years before had escaped the tyranny of his father, and had not been since heard of. At the late festival the duke had seen Julia, and her beauty made so strong an impression upon him that he had been induced now to solicit her hand. The Marquis, delighted with the prospect of a connection so flattering to his favorite passion, readily granted his consent and immediately sealed it with a promise. Julia remained for the rest of the day shut up in her closet, where the tender efforts of Madame and Amelia were exerted to soften her distress. Towards the close of evening, Ferdinand entered. Hippolytus, shocked at her absence, had requested him to visit her, to alleviate his affliction, and, if possible, to discover its cause. Ferdinand, who tenderly loved his sister, was alarmed by the words of Hippolytus, and immediately sought her. Her eyes were swelled with weeping, and her countenance was but too expressive of the state of her mind. Ferdinand's distress, when told of his father's conduct, was scarcely less than her own. He had pleased himself with the hope of uniting the sister of his heart with the friend whom he loved. An act of cruel authority now dissolved the fairy dream of happiness which his fancy had formed, and destroyed the peace of those most dear to him. He sat for a long time silent and dejected. At length, starting from his melancholy reverie, he bade Julia good night, and returned to Hippolytus, who was waiting for him with anxious impatience in the North Hall. Ferdinand dreaded the effect of that despair which the intelligence he had to communicate would produce in the mind of Hippolytus. 
he revolved some means of softening the dreadful truth. But Hippolytus, quick to apprehend the evil which love taught him to fear, seized at once upon the reality. "'Tell me all,' said he in a tone of assumed firmness. "'I am prepared for the worst.' Ferdinand related the decree of the Marquis, and Hippolytus soon sunk into an excess of grief which defied, as much as it required, the powers of alleviation. Julia, at length, retired to her chamber, but the sorrow which occupied her mind withheld the blessings of sleep. Distracted and restless, she arose, and gently opened the window of her apartment. The night was still, and not a breath disturbed the surface of the waters. The moon shed a mild radiance over the waves, which, in gentle undulations, flowed upon the sands. The scene insensibly tranquilized her spirits. A tender and pleasing melancholy diffused itself over her mind, and as she mused, she heard the dashing of distant oars. Presently she perceived upon the light surface of the sea a small boat. The sound of the oars ceased, and a solemn strain of harmony, such as fancy wafts from the abodes of the blessed, stole upon the silence of night. A chorus of voices now swelled upon the air, and died away at a distance. In the strain Julia recollected the midnight hymn to the Virgin, and holy enthusiasm filled her heart. The chorus was repeated, accompanied by a solemn striking of oars. A sigh of ecstasy stole from her bosom. Silence returned. The divine melody she had heard calmed the tumult of her mind, and she sunk in sweet repose. She arose in the morning refreshed by light slumbers, but the recollection of her sorrows soon returned with new force, and sickening faintness overcame her. In this situation she received a message from the Marquis to attend him instantly. She obeyed, and he bade her prepare to receive the Duke, who that morning proposed to visit the castle. He commanded her to attire herself richly, and to welcome him with smiles. Julia submitted in silence. She saw the Marquis was inflexibly resolved, and she withdrew to indulge the anguish of her heart, and prepare for the detested interview. The clock had struck twelve when a flourish of trumpets announced the approach of the Duke. The heart of Julia sunk at the sound, and she threw herself on a sofa, overwhelmed with bitter sensations. Here she was soon disturbed by a message from the Marquis. She arose, and tenderly embracing Amelia, their tears for some moments flowed together. At length, summoning all her fortitude, she descended to the hall, where she was met by the Marquis. He led her to the saloon in which the Duke sat, with whom, having conversed a short time, he withdrew. The emotion of Julia at this instant was beyond anything she had before suffered, but by a sudden and strange exertion of fortitude, which the force of desperate calamity sometimes affords us, but which inferior sorrow toils after in vain, she recovered her composure and resumed her natural dignity. For a moment she wondered at herself, and she formed the dangerous resolution of throwing herself upon the generosity of the Duke by acknowledging her reluctance to the engagement and soliciting him to withdraw his suit. The duke approached her with an air of proud condensation, and taking her hand, placed himself beside her. Having paid some formal and general compliments to her beauty, he proceeded to profess himself her admirer. 
She listened for some time to his professions, and when he appeared willing to hear her, she addressed him. "'I am justly sensible, my lord, of the distinction you offer me, and must lament that respectful gratitude is the only sentiment I can return. Nothing can more strongly prove my confidence in your generosity than when I confess to you that parental authority urges me to give my hand whither my heart cannot accompany it.' She paused. The duke continued silent. "'Tis you only, my lord, who can release me from a situation so distressing, and to your goodness and justice I appeal, certain that necessity will excuse the singularity of my conduct, and that I shall not appeal in vain. The duke was embarrassed. A flush of pride overspread his countenance, and he seemed endeavoring to stifle the feelings that swelled his heart. "'I had been prepared, madam,' said he, "'to expect a very different reception, "'and had certainly no reason to believe "'that the Duke de Loovo was likely to sue in vain. "'Since, however, madam, "'you acknowledge that you have already disposed of your affections, "'I shall certainly be very willing, "'if the Marquis will release me from our mutual engagements, "'to resign you to a more favoured lover.' "'Pardon me, my lord,' said Julia, blushing, "'Suffer me to—' "'I am not easily deceived, madam,' interrupted the duke. "'Your conduct can be attributed only to the influence of a prior attachment, "'and though for so young a lady such a circumstance is somewhat extraordinary, "'I have certainly no right to arraign your choice. "'Permit me to wish you a good morning.' "'He bowed low and quitted the room. "'Julia now experienced a new distress,' She dreaded the resentment of the Marquis when he should be informed of her conversation with the Duke, of whose character she now judged too justly not to repent the confidence she had reposed in him. The Duke, on quitting Julia, went to the Marquis, with whom he remained in conversation some hours. When he had left the castle, the Marquis sent for his daughter, and poured forth his resentment with all the violence of threats and all the acrimony of contempt. So severely did he ridicule the idea of her disposing of her heart, and so dreadfully did he denounce vengeance on her disobedience, that she scarcely thought herself safe in his presence. She stood trembling and confused, and heard his reproaches without the power to reply. At length the Marquis informed her that the nuptials would be solemnized on the third day from the present, and as he quitted the room a flood of tears came to her relief, and saved her from fainting. Julia passed the remainder of the day in her closet with Amelia. Night returned, but brought her no peace. She sat long after the departure of Amelia, and to beguile recollection she selected a favorite author, endeavoring to revive those sensations his page had once excited. She opened to a passage, the tender sorrow of which was applicable to her own situation, and her tears flowed wean. Her grief was soon suspended by apprehension. Hitherto a deadly silence had reigned through the castle, interrupted only by the wind, whose low sound crept at intervals through the galleries. She now thought she heard a footstep near her door, but presently all was still, and she believed she had been deceived by the wind. The succeeding moment, however, convinced her of her error, for she distinguished the low whisperings of some persons in the gallery. Her spirits, already weakened by sorrow, deserted her. 
she was seized with an universal terror, and presently afterwards a low voice called her from without, and the door was opened by Ferdinand. She shrieked and fainted. On recovering, she found herself supported by Ferdinand and Hippolytus, who had stolen this moment of silence and security to gain admittance to her presence. Hippolytus came to urge a proposal which despair only could have suggested. "'Fly,' said he, "'from the authority of a father who abuses his power, "'and assert the liberty of choice which nature assigned you. "'Let the desperate situation of my hopes "'plead excuse for the apparent boldness of this address, "'and let the man who exists but for you "'be the means of saving you from destruction. "'Alas, madam, you are silent, "'and perhaps I have forfeited by this proposal "'the confidence I so lately flattered myself I possessed.' If so, I will submit to my fate in silence, and will to-morrow quit a scene which presents only images of distress to my mind. Julia could speak but with her tears. A variety of strong and contending emotions struggled at her breast, and suppressed the power of utterance. Ferdinand seconded the proposal of the Count. "'It is unnecessary, my sister,' said he, "'to point out the misery which awaits you here.' I love you too well tamely to suffer you to be sacrificed to ambition, and to a passion still more hateful. I now glory in calling Hippolytus my friend. Let me ere long receive him as a brother. I can give no stronger testimony of my esteem for his character than in the wish I now express. Believe me, he has a heart worthy of your acceptance, a heart noble and expansive as your own. Ah, cease! said Julia, to dwell upon a character of whose worth I am fully sensible. Your kindness and his merit can never be forgotten by her, whose misfortunes you have so generously suffered to interest you. She paused in silent hesitation. A sense of delicacy made her hesitate upon the decision which her heart so warmly prompted. If she fled with Hippolytus, she would avoid one evil and encounter another, she would escape the dreadful destiny awaiting her, but must, perhaps, sully the purity of her reputation, which was dearer to her than existence. In a mind like hers, exquisitely susceptible of the pride of honor, this fear was able to counteract every other consideration, and to keep her intentions in a state of painful suspense. She sighed deeply and continued silent. Hippolytus was alarmed by the calm distress which her countenance exhibited. "'Oh, Julia,' said he, "'relieve me from this dreadful suspense. Speak to me. Explain this silence.' She looked mournfully upon him. Her lips moved, but no sounds were uttered. As he repeated his question, she waved her hand and sunk back in her chair. She had not fainted, but continued some time in a state of stupor not less alarming." The importance of the present question operating upon her mind, already harassed by distress, had produced a temporary suspension of reason. Hippolytus hung over her in an agony not to be described, and Ferdinand vainly repeated her name. At length, uttering a deep sigh, she raised herself, and like one awakened from a dream, gazed around her. Hippolytus thanked God fervently in his heart. "'Tell me but that you are well,' said he, "'and that I may dare to hope, "'and we will leave you to repose.' "'My sister,' said Ferdinand, 
Consult only your own wishes, and leave the rest to me. Suffer a confidence in me to dissipate the doubts with which you are agitated. Ferdinand, said Julia emphatically, how shall I express the gratitude your kindness has excited? Your gratitude, said he, will be best shown in consulting your own wishes. For be assured that whatever procures your happiness will most effectively establish mine. Do not suffer the prejudices of education to render you miserable. Believe me that a choice which involves the happiness or misery of your whole life ought to be decided only by yourself. Let us forbear for the present, said Hippolytus, to urge the subject. Repose is necessary for you, addressing Julia, and I will not suffer a selfish consideration any longer to withhold you from it. Grant me but this request, that at this hour tomorrow night I may return hither to receive my doom. Julia, having consented to receive Hippolytus and Ferdinand, they quitted the closet. In turning into the grand gallery, they were surprised by the appearance of a light, which gleamed upon the wall that terminated their view. It seemed to proceed from a door which opened upon a back staircase. They pushed on, but it almost instantly disappeared, and upon the staircase all was still. They then separated and retired to their apartments, somewhat alarmed by this circumstance, which induced them to suspect that their visit to Julia had been observed. Julia passed the night in broken slumbers and anxious consideration. On her present decision hung the crisis of her fate. Her consciousness of the influence of Hippolytus over her heart made her fear to indulge its predilection, by trusting to her own opinion of its fidelity. She shrunk from the disgraceful idea of an elopement, yet she saw no means of avoiding this, but by rushing upon the fate so dreadful to her imagination. On the following night, when the inhabitants of the castle were retired to rest, Hippolytus, whose expectation had lengthened the hours into ages, accompanied by Ferdinand, revisited the closet. Julia, who had known no interval of rest since they last left her, received them with much agitation. The vivid glow of health had fled her cheek, and was succeeded by a languid delicacy less beautiful but more interesting. To the eager inquiries of Hippolytus she returned no answer, but faintly smiling through her tears presented him her hand and covered her face with her robe. "'I receive it,' cried he, "'as the pledge of my happiness, yet, yet let your voice ratify the gift.' "'If the present concession does not sink me in your esteem,' said Julia in a low tone, "'this hand is yours.' "'The concession, my love, for by that tender name I may now call you, "'would, if possible, raise you in my esteem, "'but since that has been long incapable of addition, "'it can only heighten my opinion of myself "'and increase my gratitude to you, "'gratitude which I will endeavor to show "'by an anxious care of your happiness.' and by the tender affections of a whole life. From this blessed moment, continued he in a voice of rapture, permit me in thought to hail you as my wife. From this moment let me banish every vestige of sorrow. Let me dry those tears, gently pressing her cheek with his lips, never to spring again. The gratitude and joy which Ferdinand expressed upon this occasion, united with the tenderness of Hippolytus, to soothe the agitated spirits of Julia, 
and she gradually recovered her complacency. They now arranged their plan of escape, in the execution of which no time was to be lost, since the nuptials with the duke were to be solemnized on the day after the morrow. Their scheme, whatever it was that should be adopted, they therefore resolved to execute on the following night. But when they descended from the first warmth of enterprise to minuter examination, they soon found the difficulties of the undertaking. The keys of the castle were kept by Robert, the confidential servant of the Marquis, who every night deposited them in an iron chest in his chamber. To obtain them by a stratagem seemed impossible, and Ferdinand feared to tamper with the honesty of this man, who had been many years in the service of the Marquis. Dangerous as was the attempt, no other alternative appeared, and they were therefore compelled to rest all their hopes upon the experiment. It was settled that if the keys could be procured, Ferdinand and Hippolytus should meet Julia in the closet, that they should convey her to the seashore, from whence a boat, which was to be kept in waiting, would carry them to the opposite coast of Calabria, where the marriage might be solemnized without danger of interruption. But as it was necessary that Ferdinand should not appear in the affair, it was agreed that he should return to the castle immediately upon the embarkation of his sister. Having thus arranged their plan of operation, they separated till the following night, which was to decide the fate of Politus and Julia. Julia, whose mind was soothed by the fraternal kindness of Ferdinand and the tender assurances of Hippolytus, now experienced an interval of repose. At the return of day she awoke refreshed and tolerably composed. She selected a few clothes which were necessary and prepared them for her journey. A sentiment of generosity justified her in the reserve she preserved to Amelia and Madame de Menon, whose faithfulness and attachment she could not doubt, but whom she disdained to involve in the disgrace that must fall upon them, should their knowledge of her flight be discovered. In the meantime the castle was a scene of confusion. The magnificent preparations which were making for the nuptials engaged all eyes and busied all hands. The marchioness had the direction of the whole, and the alacrity with which she acquitted herself testified how much she was pleased with the alliance, and created a suspicion that it had not been concerted without some exertion of her influence. Thus was Julia designed the joint victim of ambition and illicit love. The composure of Julia declined with the day, whose hours had crept heavily along. As the night drew on, her anxiety for the success of Ferdinand's negotiation with Robert increased to a painful degree. A variety of new emotions pressed at her heart and subdued her spirits. When she bade Emilia good night, she thought she beheld her for the last time. The ideas of the distance which would separate them of the dangers she was going to encounter with a train of wild and fearful anticipations crowded upon her mind. Tears sprang to her eyes, and it was with difficulty she avoided betraying her emotions. Of Madame, too, her heart took a tender farewell. At length she heard the Marquis retire to his apartment, and the doors belonging to the several chambers of the guests successively closed. She marked with trembling attention the gradual change from bustle to quiet, till all was still. She now held herself in readiness to depart at the moment in which Ferdinand and Hippolytus, for whose steps in the gallery she eagerly listened, should appear. 
The castle clock struck twelve. The sound seemed to shake the pile. Julia felt it thrill upon her heart. "'I hear you,' sighed she, "'for the last time.' The stillness of death succeeded. She continued to listen, but no sound met her ear. For a considerable time she sat in a state of anxious expectation not to be described. The clock chimed the successive quarters, and her fear rose to each additional sound. At length she heard it strike one. Hollow was that sound, and dreadful to her hopes, for neither Hippolytus nor Ferdinand appeared. She grew faint with fear and disappointment. Her mind, which for two hours had been kept upon the stretch of expectation, now resigned itself to despair. She gently opened the door of her closet and looked upon the gallery, but all was lonely and silent. It appeared that Robert had refused to be accessory to their scheme, and it was probable that he had betrayed it to the Marquis. Overwhelmed with bitter reflections, she threw herself upon the sofa in the first distraction of despair. Suddenly she thought she heard a noise in the gallery, and as she started from her posture to listen to the sound, the door of her closet was gently opened by Ferdinand. "'Come, my love,' said he, "'the keys are ours, and we have not a moment to lose. Our delay has been unavoidable, but this is no time for explanation.' Julia, almost fainting, gave her hand to Ferdinand, and Hippolytus, after some short expression of his thankfulness, followed. They passed the door of Madame's chamber, and treading the gallery with slow and silent steps descended to the hall. This they crossed towards a door, after opening which they were to find their way through various passages to a remote part of the castle, where a private door opened upon the walls. Ferdinand carried the several keys, they fastened the hall door after them, and proceeded through a narrow passage, terminating in a staircase. They descended, and had hardly reached the bottom when they heard a loud noise at the door above, and presently the voices of several people. Julia scarcely felt the ground she trod on, and Ferdinand flew to unlock a door that obstructed their way. He applied the different keys, and at length found the proper one, but the lock was rusted and refused to yield. Their distress was not now to be conceived. The noise above increased, and it seemed as if the people were forcing the door. Hippolytus and Ferdinand vainly tried to turn the key. A sudden crash from above convinced them that the door had yielded. Then, making another desperate effort, the key broke in the lock. Trembling and exhausted, Julia gave herself up for lost. As she hung upon Ferdinand, Hippolytus vainly endeavored to soothe her. The noise suddenly ceased. They listened, dreading to hear the sounds renewed. But to their utter astonishment, the silence of the place remained undisturbed. They had now time to breathe, and to consider the possibility of effecting their escape. For from the Marquis they had no mercy to hope. Hippolytus, in order to ascertain whether the people had quitted the door above, began to ascend the passage, in which he had not gone many steps when the noise was renewed with increased violence. He instantly retreated, and making a desperate push at the door below, which obstructed their passage, it seemed to yield, and by another effort of Ferdinand burst open. They had not an instant to lose, for they now heard the steps of persons descending the stairs. The avenue they were in opened into a kind of chamber, whence, 
three passages branched, of which they immediately chose the first. Another door now obstructed their passage, and they were compelled to wait while Ferdinand applied the keys. "'Be quick,' said Julia, "'or we are lost. Oh, if this lock, too, is rusted!' "'Hark!' said Ferdinand. They now discovered what apprehension had before prevented them from perceiving that the sounds of pursuit were ceased, and all again was silent. As this could happen only by the mistake of their pursuers in taking the wrong route, they resolved to preserve their advantage by concealing the light which Ferdinand now covered with his cloak. The door was opened and they passed on, but they were perplexed in the intricacies of the place and wandered about in vain endeavor to find their way. Often did they pause to listen, and often did fancy give them sounds of fearful import. At length they entered on the passage which Ferdinand knew led directly to a door that opened on the woods. Rejoiced at this certainty, they soon reached the spot which was to give them liberty. Ferdinand turned the key, the door unclosed, and to their infinite joy discovered to them the gray dawn. "'Now, my love,' said Hippolytus, you are safe and I am happy. Immediately a loud voice from without exclaimed, Take, villain, the reward of your perfidy. At the same instant, Hippolytus received a sword in his body and uttering a deep sigh fell to the ground. Julia shrieked and fainted. Ferdinand, drawing his sword, advanced towards the assassin, upon whose countenance the light of his lamp then shone and discovered to him his father. The sword fell from his grasp, and he started back in an agony of horror. He was instantly surrounded and seized by the servants of the Marquis, while the Marquis himself denounced vengeance upon his head, and ordered him to be thrown into the dungeon of the castle. At this instant the servants of the Count, who were awaiting his arrival on the seashore, hearing the tumult, hastened to the scene, and there beheld their beloved master lifeless and weltering in his blood. They conveyed the bleeding body with loud lamentations on board the vessel which had been prepared for him and immediately set sail for Italy. Julia, on recovering her senses, found herself in a small room of which she had no remembrance, with her maid weeping over her. Recollection, when it returned, brought to her mind an energy of grief which exceeded even all former conceptions of sufferings yet her misery was heightened by the intelligence which she now received. She learned that Hippolytus had been borne away lifeless by his people, that Ferdinand was confined to a dungeon by order of the Marquis, and that herself was a prisoner in a remote room, from which on the day after the morrow she was to be removed to the chapel of the castle, and there sacrificed to the ambition of her father and the absurd love of the Duke de Ovo. This accumulation of evil subdued each power of resistance, and reduced Julia to a state little short of distraction. No person was allowed to approach her but her maid and the servant who brought her food. Amelia, who, though shocked by Julia's apparent want of confidence, severely sympathized in her distress, solicited to see her. But the pain of denial was so sharply aggravated by rebuke that she dared not again to urge the request. In the meantime, Ferdinand, involved in the gloom of a dungeon, was resigned to the painful recollection of the past and a horrid anticipation of the future. From the resentment of the Marquis, whose passions were wild and terrible, 
and whose rank gave him an unlimited power of life and death in his own territories. Ferdinand had much to fear. Yet selfish apprehension soon yielded to a more noble sorrow. He mourned the fate of Hippolytus and the sufferings of Julia. He could attribute the failure of their scheme only to the treachery of Robert, who had, however, met the wishes of Ferdinand with strong apparent sincerity and generous interest in the cause of Julia. On the night of the intended elopement, he had consigned the keys to Ferdinand, who immediately on receiving them went to the apartment of Hippolytus. There they were detained till after the clock had struck one by a low noise, which returned at intervals, and convinced them that some part of the family was not yet retired to rest. This noise was undoubtedly occasioned by the people whom the Marquis had employed to watch, and whose vigilance was too faithful to suffer the fugitives to escape. The very caution of Ferdinand defeated its purpose, for it is probable that had he attempted to quit the castle by the common entrance, he might have escaped. The keys of the grand door and those of the courts remained in the possession of Robert. The Marquis was certain of the intended place of their departure, and was thus enabled to defeat their hopes at the very moment when they exulted in their success. When the Marchioness learned the fate of Hippolytus, the resentment of jealous passion yielded to emotions of pity. Revenge was satisfied, and she could now lament the sufferings of a youth whose personal charms had touched her heart as much as his virtues had disappointed her hopes. Still, true to passion and inaccessible to reason, she poured upon the defenseless Julia her anger for that calamity by which she herself was the unwilling cause. By a dexterous adaptation of her powers, she had worked upon the passions of the Marquis so as to render him relentless in the pursuit of ambitious purposes, and insatiable in revenging his disappointment. But the effects of her artifices exceeded her intention in exerting them, and when she meant only to sacrifice a rival to her love, she found she had given up its object to revenge. End of chapter 3